Hi, everyone. This is Alex Epstein, host of Power Hour. We are releasing this episode on Wednesday, October 9th, and this is a best of episode. There's no new episode this week, and there won't be for several more weeks because I'm working on delivering the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0 to the publisher, and I need Stefan and Don's help full time on that. So no power hour for a little while. But in the meantime, since we have something like hundreds of back episodes, we're going to pick the best of power hour. And this week, we're going to pick an episode with someone named Michael Schellenberger. The episode is on a new approach to environmental issues. Now, at the time I interviewed him several years ago, Mike, or Michael, was pretty prominent on energy and environmental issues, and he ran something called the Breakthrough Institute, which is still around and still doing a lot of interesting work. But since then, and I'd say in particular in the last year or two, Mike has really broken out as probably the preeminent advocate of nuclear power. And he's had a Forbes column, which you can check out if you just search Forbes, Michael Schellenberger, where he's made lots and lots of fascinating points. And in particular, he's done a very good job at exposing the flaws of so-called renewables, which I call unreliables, so namely solar and wind, and then exposing the truth about nuclear power, both its potential, but also how the modern green movement opposes it. One thing I've always liked about Mike is that he has a very good understanding of the philosophical ideas that shape people's thinking about energy, as well as having a very detailed factual knowledge of a lot of the issues. So I enjoyed this first interview with him uh, several years ago, and I thought you might as well. And I encourage you to listen to this interview and then check Mike out on Twitter. Just search his name on Twitter, Michael Schellenberger, and also check out his Forbes column. Hope you enjoy the episode. And we'll be back next week with another Best of Power Hour. Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour. The show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites. No talking points. No nonsense. No BS. No softball questions. No vagueness. Just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. This week, we have on a guest that I've wanted for a long time, and it's Michael Schellenberger, who's the president of the Breakthrough Institute. Now, we'll talk about the Breakthrough Institute throughout the program, but uh, what's really, and actually we've had one guest who was a writer from there before, who's Will Boisvert, who wrote a really interesting piece on the nature of biofuels and how they have all sorts of destructive consequences that the green movement tends to ignore, at least at least when they're in the process of opposing fossil fuels and nuclear power. Uh, but the Breakthrough Institute is, is interesting because it has a lot of people who might classify themselves as liberals, which today we think of as often anti-industrial, uh, anti-fossil fuel, anti-nuclear, um, but historically, that wasn't true at all. Uh, the, uh, you know, I think there have been many problems with you know, these terms. Liberal and conservative aren't aren't very good terms. But if what you want to talk about is the left in terms of historically support for things like uh, communism, socialism, what was called the old left, uh, that was coupled with a very overt support for industrial progress. Now, ultimately, those proved incompatible, 
and um, they had to choose between capitalism and, in, and industry. And in the book, The New Left, Ayn Rand talks about how when given that choice, many on the left chose, uh, chose to be anti-industry. Uh, and, and particularly in this form of what we can call uh, and the anti-impact philosophy or the nature worship um, and, and finding and saying, well, capitalism, yes, it, it is industrial, but that's actually a, a bad thing. Anyway, what's really interesting about the Breakthrough Institute is all, all sorts of different political philosophies there, uh, but includes many, many liberals who say what should seem like fairly obvious things such as if CO2 emissions are a problem or to the extent they were a problem, you would obviously have to be in favor of nuclear power. And that is uh, uh, such an evident truth if you study the issue, and yet it's it's surprisingly missing. And what, what I find from their work is they just have lots of lots of really interesting facts in their pieces. And also they're they're very philosophical. They're very aware of the 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 underlying philosophy that it's wrong for man to impact nature. And they have they give their take on that philosophy and their own alternative, which isn't uh, exactly my view, which I'd call the humanist view, but, but which is an interesting take and certainly much better uh, than the mainstream environmentalism. And it's it's in a new document called the Eco-Modernist uh, Manifesto. So um, we're going to talk with Mike Schellenberger uh, about that manifesto, about the Breakthrough Institute, uh, about some things we uh, agree and disagree on. And it should be uh, really interesting. So stick around. We'll have Mike Schellenberger on the other side. Our hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We are joined now by Michael Schellenberger, president of the Breakthrough Institute. Michael, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks, Alex. Nice to nice to be here. All right. So I think people who listen to the show have probably heard of your institution. I, I have mentioned it in in various contexts and uh, recommended. Uh, the book Love Your Monsters, and, and I believe it's it's cited in, in the moral case for fossil fuels. Uh, it's really, really interesting. So let's start out with what is the what is the Breakthrough Institute, and in particular, what was the origin of it? Because it it, it is situated in a in almost unique place in this debate. Sure. Thanks. Um, so let's see. Breakthrough Institute. We are a research organization that is changing how people think about energy and the environment. So, our day-to-day -day work is to do research. Um, our focus right now is really on how humans save nature. There's a lot of attention, and hundreds of books and articles that get written every year about how humans destroy nature. And, and we want to figure out what is it that humans do that spare or save um, natural landscapes. What really matters from an environmental perspective. Um, and let's see, we started uh, about 12 years ago in 2003. Uh, we co-founded something called the New Apollo Project, which was a, um, a campaign for a $100 billion uh, investment in, I'm sorry, a $300 billion investment in uh, clean energy. Um, and then we received our first foundation support in 2007. So we've really been a functioning proper think tank for the last um, eight years, but we've been around as sort of, um, you know, as writers and agitators for, for more than 12. So what's your personal story in getting into energy and environmental issues from, uh, from a different perspective? Well, let's see. So I spent much of my 20s 
uh, helping um, on progressive and environmental causes. Um, we uh, were involved in protesting Nike sweatshops in Asia for having poor working conditions and low wages. We, um, uh, I met uh, the, one of the other co-founders of Breakthrough Institute, Ted Nordhaus, who's also my co-author, uh, working to save the last ancient redwoods. But when it came to climate change, we really started to lose confidence that our, our colleagues in the environmental community knew what they were doing. And we really didn't know how bad it was <laughs> um, until around 2004 when we started doing interviews with environmental leaders trying to understand what their strategy was on climate change. And we came to the conclusion that really the problem with the whole environmental approach to climate was this very narrow way of thinking about the environment. And so we wrote an essay called The Death of Environmentalism, caused a lot of international debate. Uh, we did a, a, a expanded it into a full-length book in 2007 um, called Breakthrough. Um, and, you know, what stayed the same over that last 10 years is our belief that technological innovation and making cleaner energy sources cheap is the key to dealing with climate change and other environmental problems. What's changed is that I, uh, is that we've come to see a different set of technologies as the most important technologies for dealing with environmental problems. All right, so we'll get into all of those. Uh, um, since my background is philosophy. I'm always interested in in philosophical differences. And one one thing that struck me when, particularly when reading Love Your Monsters, but also the other work, is in terms of people who understand what we can call the green philosophy is really about, or at least e even who try to name it as a philosophy, because most discussion of these issues just talks about the environment, green environmentalist, but these terms are very vaguely used. And you do talk about, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but of the ideal of unaltered nature, and that you know, that should be the ideal that guides us, and that's an ideal that's, that's uh, central to many people in the, I'd say, so-called uh, environmental movement. In terms of Breakthrough Institute's development and your development or Ted's development, what what brought you to that philosophical focus? Because that's that the first thing I noticed when I started reading your stuff is, is how philosophical it is. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about philosophy. It's rare I have a chance to. Um, so I think, well, so in terms of, I mean, in the sense we've just been, we, we've been peeling the onion, trying to understand both, you know, what we think matters in, in terms of making a better world, and also why it is that environmentalism is the way it is. Um, and so one of the things that struck us very early on, and, obvi and obviously strikes a lot of other people, is that environmentalism is just really depressing. Like, you just, <laughs> you listen to it, and it, you feel bad. Um, and, and there's reasons for that, because the story it's telling is a depressing story. Um, in fact, uh, when we were writing our book, we discovered Aaron Beck, who was the founder of Cognitive Therapy, and uh, Beck was doing traditional Freudian psychoanalysis with his, pa his depressed patients. He was fine, you know, talking about your mother and all the things that Freudian psychoanalysts would do, and none of it worked with his depressed patients. So he said, look, I'm going to try something completely different. I'm going to try to understand what it is about depressed people. So he listened to the stories they told, and they were all the same. It, it had three parts to it. It was... Um, I'm a terrible person, you know, the world is a terrible place, and the future is bleak. Um, so it's a story about the self, a story about the world, and a story about the future. 
So what he did with his depressed patients is he said, I want you to go and argue back against those depressing overgeneralizations. I want you to every day write down about how you're a good person um, and a strong person and a vibrant person. I want you to talk about how the world is a great place, wonderful place, and I want you to be really specific. And I want you to talk about how the future is going to be bright. And sure enough, it worked. And that is the foundation of cognitive therapy. And when, when, we, read, when we read this work, we were, I sort of fell off my chair because that story the depressed person tells is identical to the story that environmentalists tell. Um, you know, humans are greedy and sinful. Um, you know, the world is fallen. It's in a state of chaos. Um, things are getting worse. And the future is going to be dark. You know, incidentally, it's very similar to the Judeo-Christian narrative, um, uh, which about, you know, starts with the fall from Eden. Humans have original sin, and it's all going to end in apocalypse in the book of Revelations. So in some ways, I think we think Breakthrough's job is to do cognitive therapy with the environmental movement. Yeah, well, you're, also, you're also indicating there that there is a, you know, very much, very religious component to it. Um, I mean, it, it has a religious narrative to it. And I, don't, I mean, I think it came from the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition, in part, or at least that kind of narrative, although I think that, that's true of a lot of religions and, and traditions that they have that kind of uh, hell narrative. Yeah, I mean, I think lately also we've come to think that really what environmentalism is, so first of all, environmentalism really doesn't have that much to do with the environment. Um, and if you look at the founding of the environmental movement, one of the most important things about it um, in the late 60s and early 70s is that it had this idea that there was too many people, people were destroying the world, and the way to stop that was to deny humans energy. So energy got viewed as bad. So you have these very famous quotes um, from uh, Paul Ehrlich, you know, who wrote The Population Bomb. Paul Ehrlich said... Um, if you uh, giving society cheap, abundant energy is like giving an idiot child a machine gun. Um, Amory Lovins, who is best known for promoting the idea that you can power the world on renewables, he said, if you ask me, it'd be a little short of disastrous for us to discover a source of clean, cheap, abundant energy because of what we would do with it. So the environmental movement was always against, it was really against energy in a kind of Malthusianism. But I think it even goes deeper than that. I think it actually is what um is, is just basically a rejection of this world and a strong fantasy that there's another world. Um, you know, another world that we should use to judge our actions that we can achieve. It's fundamentally different. You have to have an apocalyptic break. And um, so nihilism, in some sense, is really the motivating concern of environmentalism. And really what nihilism does is it says we need to choke off human energy, human creativity, human ingenuity, we need to um, basically harness and control and put all of that, what I think is special about humans, um, under the control of a higher authority. And the only difference then, of course, is that if traditionally the higher authority was God, and now the higher authority is supposedly nature, supposedly telling us what to do. And a lot of this, um, you know, the desire for nature to be able to tell us what to do is in some ways a reaction but it's, a, it's that same nihilism, but it's also a reaction to modernity and complexity and freedom. And it's a way of being like, we don't want the, the it, it's a way of saying we don't want the is-ought distinction that modern science and modern philosophy, starting with Hume, uh, bring into being. We don't want those freedom of choices. 
Um, what we want, what they want is a kind of authoritarian discourse that puts people back in their place and that sort of denies uh, essential human freedom and human possibility. Well, lots of issues there. I want to jump on the nihilism thing because I do agree that it's nihilistic, um, but I don't see how that implies, how, how exactly that relates to the idea of this other superior world. I mean, for instance, you have, you certainly have people, I mean, it's, it's weird because you see, you see in different traditions, it goes both ways. I mean, so you see, I mean, nihilistic suicide bombers who do talk about another world. Um, and, you know, that is certainly a, a kind of nihilism. And, you know, we can talk about what their motivations uh, are. And the other world can be a rationalization for it. I mean, there are idealists who do want the world to be uh, a much better place and don't seem to have the same kind of hatred for human beings that many environmentalists do. I mean, even, even communists, uh, I think in that sense, did not have that same kind of nihilism. There was at least this idea of a flourishing human future, whereas the ideal of environmentalism ultimately seems to be a future, a, a better world, meaning a non-human world. Yeah, I mean, I think there's different variants of it, but for example, remember, um, you know, um, uh, communism was based on this idea that we were going to create a society where there was no inequality, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs, um, you know, that you would be able to sort of eliminate um, something that um, is really part of this world, is really part of being human, it's part of nature, um, you know, it's not to justify, um, you know, inappropriate kinds of inequality or cruelty, but it is to say, like, these, the effort to sort of stamp out all inequality um, ended up making for much worse societies. Um, you know, or think of the Khmer Rouge, where we're going to go back to this kind of rule. I mean, Mao did something similar. We're going to go back to this kind of rural way of living. You know, there's a pattern to human development. It's centralization, it's cities, it's, you know, mass production, it's modernity, it's more, free, it's more choices for people. And these reactions to it, whether it's sort of environmentalism or um, other kind of revolutionary ideas, all have some idea that you can have this just kind of fundamentally different society um, where all of these terrible aspects of the world are eliminated. Um, and, um, and, and the reality is that when people try to, to create those societies, it, it requires huge amounts of violence and oppression and cruelty. Um, I, my own view is, you know, our view is basically that, um, you know, we can see what, what, what's been better for, for, for most people. Um, and it's really a combination of, um, you know, some amount of, of free markets and, and some amount of, of good government. And I don't really um, think, I think if you go too far in either of those directions, you get, you know, various kinds of problems. But um, I think you see the nihilism in anybody who's saying, all of this modernity, all of this world needs to radically change. I mean, you see it in Naomi Klein. You see it in the Pope's recent speech, or the, the Pope's recent encyclical. So I want to talk a little bit about how you've been received, uh, because I see a lot of attacks on you, which, you know, it's a credit to you for getting attention. Uh, but, well, let, let me just ask that. How, how has the 
mainstream environmental community, but I guess particularly the more Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Joe Rahm, that kind of group, how do they, they respond to your work? Because just to summarize some of the stuff, you know, you'll often show, for example, that, uh, and this is pretty much proven, that, you know, industrial societies using certain kinds of technology uh, lead to far, you know, allow, make it far easier to preserve nature than, quote, natural ways of living. And you point out facts like all things being equal, natural gas and certainly nuclear power uh, are very valuable if your goal was to reduce uh, CO2 emissions. And yet uh, some of them savage you, not, not intellectually successfully, but, but nevertheless. So I'm curious about, to hear from your perspective, what have the reactions been? I mean, mostly the reaction is to um, try to ignore us um, and not have to deal with any of the substance of our argument. And then, you know, basically whenever our stuff gets any amount of attention, you know, whenever we're in the New York Times or, you know, in mainstream media, basically, then they just attack us personally. Um, and um, so they basically say of things to attack our motivations as impure. They say... We're just trying to get attention because we're just, whatever, like children, I guess, trying to get attention, trying to raise money, uh, doing it because we're secretly on the take from somebody. Um, mostly, nobody wants to deal with the content. Um, and obviously, they can't because the content is the content. And there's really not a lot of, you know, um, not a lot of scientific debate over the kind of claims and arguments that we make. Um, I think you saw that around the Ecomoners Manifesto. I mean, Mostly the people who attacked were the deep greens, um, you know, not the mainstream environmental groups um, or mainstream environmental uh, uh, leaders or thinkers. And, and that's because the deep greens are actually quite happy to come out and admit that they want this completely radical change in society. They want, you know, degrowth. You know, they want less, they want, they don't even want less economic growth. They want reversal of growth. And they're more, more openly they're more honest about their intentions. Um, so I say those are the main ways that, that we're treated. And, and, and obviously it's fine. Those are just, those are our, our political opponents. And, and those are the people that we're having an argument with. All right, let's go to Eco-Modernist uh, Manifesto, which anyone, if you would like to read along, you can go to ecomodernism.org slash manifesto. That's ecomodernism.org slash manifesto. And I'm going to take this uh, a little bit out of order uh, just to highlight certain points. One point that I really like in this and that I like in a lot of your work and that I wish there was more material on in general is the historic relationship between man and the rest of nature. Because we, what we usually get is this uh, sort of eco-Puritan narrative of every population until the Industrial Revolution had this magical Disney-esque re relationship with the rest of nature. They didn't trample anything. There was no footprint. And then we, for lack of a less offensive word, you know, raped nature. And you, you make just, there are all these fascinating points in your work, and I, I could read this stuff, you know, hundreds of times over about what our actual relationship with nature has been, all kinds of different peoples throughout history. So could you just talk about uh, the truth about man's historical relationship with the rest of nature? Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, it, it's... Um the stuff that really surprises people and like who literally don't believe you is when you talk about how, you know, moving from wood to coal 
you know, horrible coal was critical to saving the world's forests, you know, um, or um, kerosene saved the whales in the 19th century. Um, that's really uncomfortable knowledge, <laughs> as academics call it, um, for people. Uh, you know, and I think the reality is, you know, nature in a lot of ways, nature is a terrible category. But, you know, in some ways you think about nature is a lot like energy in that it can't be created or destroyed. It can only be converted. Um, so nature is always being converted and transformed um, when there's humans around or when there's not humans around. You know, the big, the big first thing we, that humans did in terms of our environmental impact is that we wiped out all, uh, most of the prehistoric megafauna at the late Pleistocene extinction, you know, around 10 to 20,000 years ago. What that did is that when you get rid of all the mammoths and these huge, huge mammals that are basically um, keeping grasslands alive and, and repressing forests, once you cause them to go extinct, then you have all these forests. So these forests that Europeans see when they arrive um, in the Americas, uh, or you know, really uh, forests that anybody sees, um, are really constructions in an important sense of, of human development. And uh, they're not this primeval forest given to us by God or by natural primeval. They're really constructions. And similarly, um, uh, you know. Um, uh, that process then continues with agriculture. So uh, uh, going to agriculture obviously transforms the planet and then going from agriculture to industrial societies, uh, as you pointed out, um, you are able to sort of increasingly concentrate energy, centralize production, and liberate the environment um, from having to just serve human needs and actually just go back to being grasslands and forests like, like much of uh, Europe and the United States have. I mean, most people don't know that you know, today 80% of New England is forested, whereas 100 years ago only 30% was. And that's because the farmland there just wasn't as good as the farmland in Iowa um, and other parts of the Midwest. And so um, that marginal farmland reverted to grasslands and then to forests. Um, so I think that understanding that process is really important. I have a lot of confidence that actually once people understand those processes that we're going to have a more of a grown-up conversation about what it's going to take uh, to protect the environment in the 21st century. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I find that the more it, it, I'm sometimes asked by people or sometimes told by people, oh, what you have to say about energy, you know, they should teach that in schools. And my view is all they should teach in schools is teach the actual history of how nature works and man's relationship to it. And if you taught that, they would have such a context for evaluating all of these things. And, and one thing that it points to is that so much of what we call preservation or conservation, which I, I love what you said about, I forget exact, your exact words, but nature as a process it's, it is not this, this sort of static thing. So to talk about preserve and conserve, it's, it's for your particular purposes. It has a huge aesthetic component to it. it and, and it's a hugely humanist preference thing to say, oh, I really like these forests. But it's not as if nature said, you know, there, thou, there shalt be forests forever through time. And most of what we regard as, quote, natural is just a blip in terms of the history of the planet. So that's that my view is that just means that there's no perfect configuration of things that it's our obligation to preserve. It's a matter of what configuration of things is going to allow us to flourish. And, and a big component of that, which environmentalists pretend that people like you and I can't acknowledge is, you know, we love the natural world and, you know, the, um, a huge amount of value can be derived 
uh, from the enjoyment of it as well as 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 tons of other values. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that's sort of the big confusion that people had is that the environmental movement was really about the environment. Um, you know, we had a conservation movement before there was an environmental movement. It would it was mostly very wealthy people, um, but also you know activists persuading the United States government to set aside special places. The environmental movement really was an anti-nuclear movement. I mean, it was really a movement that was filled with sort of upset and despair um, and, and pessimism coming out of World War II. So if you look at the origins of it, it really starts after World War II, and um, it really centers on nuclear weapons. Um, and so, you know, the, the idea that the environment, I mean, the environmental movement, um, you know, had a problem, which is that it was against nuclear energy, which was, which everybody knew was the cleanest and greenest source of energy. I mean, everybody knew it. I mean, every, all the entire scientific class, t scientific and technical class, the journalists, I mean, everybody knew you could produce a huge amount of power with very small uh, material inputs, very small amount of waste, no air and water pollution um, on, an, on a tiny footprint of land. And so the environmental movement had a problem. It had to um, attack that energy source. And that's what you saw, that, the, the quotes I mentioned, that's what you saw them doing. And they had to start making up reasons why nuclear was not environmental. And they still do. They emphasize a lot about the waste. Um, but really, it didn't have anything to do with the environment. It really was about choking off the the sort the energy that drives human development, um, modernization, uh, civilization, and ultimately the decoupling processes that allow for there to be more nature to begin with. All right. So I want to talk about you talk about it, nuclear being more green and and more beneficial for the environment, and and that gets to the issue of what exactly do we mean by green in the environment? I, I want to talk about the relationship between impact and transformation. Because if it's true if you do look at something like nuclear power from the perspective, now there is an issue of the more energy we have, the more work that can be done, the more people can transform nature in one way or another. I mean, it, Lovins on it is, is right in a certain way, on, on his own, you know, corrupt, I would say, uh, terms. Um, but so there is this this truth that say you know the obvious thing that a nuclear power plant versus a bunch of windmills is is you know, much much smaller, more compact, generates less waste, etc. But a key component of the green narrative and a key focus of it is not just impact in the sense of making any footprint esque thing on any patch of land, but I think more fundamentally man doing new things with nature, one of which is, you know, having a development, paving a road, that kind of thing. But even more egregiously in their view, doing things like genetic engineering, genetically modified foods, uh, nuclear power. So it, it seems like the core of it is really against man's transformation of nature in all kinds of ways, not just this physical footprint impact. So I'm curious what you think about that. I, I, don't, I don't think that's quite right. In other words, um, you know, you, I don't know how much you've studied some of the, the history of renewables, but in the 19th century, there was a guy named Etzler who was a utopian socialist, and he wrote a plan for how to power all of the United States on wind, sun, and, and water. It was, a, it was basically a vision of 100% renewables, 
you know, more than 100 years before Amory Lovins. And um, Ralph Waldo Emerson read it, and he said, this is really interesting, really exciting, and he gave it to his friend Thoreau. And he said, why don't you write a review of this? And Thoreau read it, and he was appalled. Why? Because it required turning so much of nature, so much of our natural landscapes uh, into energy projects. You, you know, the energy densities are so low, as you know, of you know, water, sunlight, and wind that you have to have massive transformations to the natural environment. Uh, I mean, look at the horrors of biofuels in Indonesia. Um, uh, you know, look, I spent a month, um, I wanted to figure some of the stuff out up close. So I spent the m- month of December in Central Africa. I was in Rwanda, the Congo, and Uganda. Um, dependence on wood in those places is ravaging the environment. Um, dependence on wood fuel is, I, I think, one of the worst environments not the worst environmental problem in the world. Why? Well, it's not just the four million people who die of wood smoke. Um, it's that you're in this, you're dependent on forests, which means you're also going to be hunting wildlife to extinction, extirpation. Um, you know, you're going to have charcoal production in the national parks, which is what they have in the Congo. Um, they're suffering massive killings of elephants. Um, all of this driven by their dependent, you know, by their poverty, their dependence on wood. Um, I see. I see nothing about the renewables vision that is um, um, against manipulating nature. Um, I mean, I just tweeted uh, two two recent photos that Greenpeace uh, put out of their vision of a positive world where they cover they cover golf courses with solar panels, and there's another one of a whole hillside covered with solar panels. You have to just cover huge amounts of the. You have to really use up a lot of nature in order to get renewable energy. So I. I on the one hand, maybe they have a, a double game. On the one hand, they talk about hubris and we need to constrain human ambitions. That certainly shows up in Naomi Klein and the Pope's encyclical, which is basically the same document. Um, but it. But it also. It also um, is contradicted by this real world thing where you're having to just do more and more of these massive wind and solar farms. Uh, you know, more dams, more wood use, more biofuels that have a devastating impact on the natural environment. So then I want, but see, I regard the renewable thing as very much a ruse. That is, and, and particularly the fact that renewable comes to equate solar and wind. So even within that category, they rule out usually by far the most practical and reliable, uh, right. which is hydro. So what I take right. it as is, and if you look in practice, you know, you have some very large percentage of these projects that are opposed, not, you know, not just by Robert F. Kennedy, but by tons of, uh, of other people. What I take it as is, is there is this uh, very vague ideal connection in people's mind of, oh, we're getting it naturally from the sun and the wind and nature's rhythms. And, and that's enough to, to serve as a rationalization to attack every form of energy that actually works and could work. But to go, go back to your point about nihilism, it is very nihilistic. I don't think yes. that most of the people, like, I don't know Jacobson at Stanford. His, his motives are hard for me to figure out. But certainly it's not like Bill McKibben or Lovins, by his own admission, is fantasizing about a world where we have just as much or more energy using sunbeams and wind gusts. So I think in the case of the hardcore yes. people, it's very much a rationalization. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. I think it's a very interesting subject, actually. Um, um, in other words, I, t- I think you're totally right. The renewables discourse, the anti-nuclear renewables discourse, was basically set up, and the agenda was set up, 
to move to a low energy civilization. So that's the nihilism, right? But at the same time, um, when you see the effect of these policies, you know, the European biofuels mandate and the expansion of palm oil production in rainforests in Indonesia, um, you know, corn ethanol um, in Iowa, um, you know, Germany's consumption of biomass. You know, if you look at what Germ Germany trying to make this kind of romantic, harmonious vision real um, is transforming its landscapes for energy production. Um, so I think both things are true. I think originally it really was, but I think as these guys try to show that you can power a, a modern nation on renewables, um, they're having to do things like, like do a lot more biomass, or in the case of Germany, they're going to have to burn a lot more coal. Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting uh, how it plays out. So um, other parts of the eco-modernist manifesto, and obviously we're not going to be able to cover all of it, so uh, again, people can read it at ecomodernism.org slash manifesto. All right, I'll get to decoupling in a second, but I want to talk about uh, cl the climate issue. Um, and you, you may also mention stratospheric ozone depletion, ocean acidification, you know, that's a function of, of CO2. Um, in Love Your Monsters, and to some extent here, you indicate that the human significance of this in terms of the, the usual, in contrast to the usual view that it's just an apocalypse and the whole planet will just be burned up, it is, it is an issue, but you know, not the sort of thing that you would shut down the entire uh, world for. And you know, you've read my book, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, so I, you know, I, I believe I have a considerably uh, stronger belief than that, or you know, my view is that if, if you restrict energy use at all, uh, you know, that's going to devastate people's uh, ability to, I'm not saying you disagree with this, but that's going to devastate people's uh, ability to cope with climate far more than any evidence we have that it's going to uh, do damage. What, how, how much do you get into really trying to quantify the magnitude of this stuff? Because you do mention things like the two degrees Celsius uh, target, which in my view is based on models that have not been validated. I'm curious how, how much of your focus is really quantifying the human impacts of these things, because if we're calling it a problem, you know, we have to decide it, that means there are going to be trade-offs and, and that means we have to have some sort of magnitude, but I'm not really clear from, from your work exactly what you guys think the magnitude is. Right. Well, I mean, and obviously, um, there's just huge uncertainties whenever you're talking about anything relating to the future. So, I mean, I think the first thing is, I think we all came at this with a lot of humility. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the research uh, that Philip Tetlock, a sociologist, has done looking at expert predictions um, and finding that expert predictions are basically no better than random predictions. Um, um, he also, though, finds that um, experts who do outperform other experts in terms of predictions uh, are less ideological. Um, they are more likely to try on a bunch of different ways of seeing the world, a bunch of different ways of thinking about it. Um, so obviously all of these things are dealt with a huge amount of humility. You know, I, I think um, our view broadly as eco-modernists is that there is the risk of sort of false precision in much of the ways that we talk about um, the future, including on climate, um, you know, and um, you're always making these choices in relationship to other things. So your point is really well taken, right? I mean, um, obviously, the big, the big trend, 
you know, over hundreds of years, is that humans have become more resilient to climate. Um, that's what development offers us. That's why, um, and not just climate, but every all disasters, right? I mean, um, uh, that's why in the rich world, when we have hurricanes and earthquakes, hardly anybody dies, and in the poor in the poor countries, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people can die. Um, so if if acting on climate in the future requires keeping poor people poor or restricting their development, that would absolutely be outrageous, and we would oppose that. Um, um, you know, at the same time, um, you know, there, there are risks to having a hotter planet. And, um, you know, I think there's been sort of some broad efforts to try to quantify them. Um, you know, the IPCC, I don't know if they still have it. They used to have, I thought, was kind of a helpful way of thinking about it, which is that, you know, the warmer it gets, the more risks are created, um, the more potential damages. So you want to do a set of things that can accelerate the existing uh, trends of decarbonization, the existing trends of moving towards clean energy. Um, and you wouldn't want to do them in ways that would, um, you know, restrict our ability to be adaptive to climate. Um, so, you know, just one thing, the manifesto doesn't say at all that we should, um, that we, that we, that two degrees should be our target. It just says that we're not going to stay below that target. Um, you know, that target was, is not, it's not like a scientific target. I mean, it's a, obviously you're already at a question of what we should do when you have a target, not what the science tells us. But um, you know, right now, one of the one of the projects that Breakthrough is looking at is actually trying to get some clarity about what if you if you accelerate the transition from coal to natural gas and you accelerate the transition of everything to nuclear, um, uh, what what do we think that would mean for um, uh, uh, for climate? Um, over the next century. Um, what, what do we think that would mean for, for climate stabilization um, over the next century? But, you know, I don't want to get too... Um, I think sometimes there's some people um, on all sides of this who profess, I think, a level of certainty that I don't think is appropriate. And I think that the quantifications can actually just be more, more misleading than they are uh, um, revealing. Yeah, the, the two-degree thing I find so shocking how widely it is used as just this we found this perfect number it's it's just a very weird kind of thing to have given given all the factors that would be involved in in coming to uh, a threshold and and also given the difficulty i mean to say the least of of modeling this kind of thing all right let's talk about decoupling i'll let you put it in your words what this this is what came up on twitter that gotten me the opportunity or at least led led proximately to us us talking so what is decoupling well so decoupling is just a kind of fancy word for describing um, uh, various processes where human development economic and economic growth continue and you're um, uh, um, either having much less impact um, on a natural resource or on a place or in terms of or in terms of pollution, um, or you're completely severing your impact. So it's better to talk about it in terms of examples. So um, in the late 19th century, um, we relied heavily on whale oil for lighting. Um, we decoupled from whale oil um, because we had a substitute, a very cheap substitute. In fact, it wasn't just kerosene; we actually had other substitutes as well. Um, similarly, we decoupled from wood as our primary energy when we created these other substitutes. 
And we're actually decoupling from, um, we're increasingly decoupling from land use for farming. So it takes about half as much land today as it did, um, you know, uh, a century ago to produce the same amount of food, um, which is great news if you care about human development and the environment. Um, so I think that there's sometimes in, especially on the political right among my conservative friends, I think there's sort of a defensiveness that says, um, well, we should use nature to benefit people. And, and I agree with that. Um, we should. That is obviously what we do. Um, but I don't think it means that we should um, describe those processes of modernization as one of just sort of gobbling up more and more nature. I think if you do that, you end up, first of all, it's just not true. And it ends up reinforcing this idea that environmentalists have promoted, that uh, human development um, inevitably comes at a direct uh, cost to nature. Um, there, is a, there is a cost, um, and there has been. I mean, over the last, you know, 50 years, less than 50 years, we've lost about half. Um, you know, animal, many animal populations have declined by half. So, I mean, obviously humans have this dramatic impact, dramatically negative impact on, on, on non-humans, on the non-human environment. At the same time, it's now clear that um, we, we think it's very clear that we can have um, human impacts uh, on the environment peak uh, this century and then start to decline. So as more people move to cities, as they stop eating wild meat, as they stop using wood for fuel, um, you know, basically as poor nations, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, as, as India, as, you know, Pakistan, really poor countries industrialize, um, urbanize. Um, and population peaks and declines, we also think that human consumption will actually peak and decline. There's this other picture that gets presented that somehow humans will just keep consuming more and more stuff. It's not true, actually. Uh, you know, we, um, when you go from being a subsistence peasant farmer to being a modern city dweller, your calories increase. But, you know, despite the obesity epidemic, um, we don't just consume more and more food. Um, we don't just consume more and more jet travel. A lot of us um, try to travel less because we don't like it. Um, um, and, and so there's a bunch of, so, so you kind of get this picture of peaking human impact, of peaking human population, consumption saturating and declining, um, mostly people living in cities where their impact on the natural world is, is lessened. Um, and we think that world is very viable. Um, the trends are going in the right direction, but it, it, it still depends on some of the choices that we make. So. Um, I think this vision of decoupling is very powerful because it actually really challenges this idea that that humans are sort of a cancer on the earth that we're just gobbling everything up. You know, on the contrary, there's a lot of reasons to believe we're going to use that entropy to more tightly organize human civilization um, and to more efficiently produce um, for our needs um, while having less impact on the natural world. Well. To the extent that's true, it's not going to satisfy environmentalists at all. Um, as long as well, that's are, right because environmentalism is not a, that's yes, right because environmentalism is not about saving nature fundamentally. Now, what's interesting is where do we find a bunch of our allies on this stuff? Um, increasingly, it's from the conservation community. Um, you know, Barry Brook, who's one of the co-authors of the manifesto. He circulated a sign-on letter, and there's a number of very prominent conservationists. Peter Raven, who's at the Missouri Botanical Center, Thomas Lovejoy, um, uh, um, a number of very prominent conservation scientists that came out for nuclear power. You know, why? Because they know that this is the smallest land footprint. 
They know with a large amount of cheap, clean energy, you can have more fertilizers to produce more food on less land. The vision of intensifying food production um, is really attractive to people who care about saving the environment, saving nature. I mean, the people that really do, like conservationists. You know, humans use about half of the earth. Um, of that, about half we use just for meat production. Um, you know, about 90% of the earth that we use is just for food production. So anything that, tr that, that grows more meat and food on less land is going to be a win for the environment. And so I think you're right. There's just the, there's the nihilistic, Malthusian, anti-energy, anti-development, anti-human uh, wing of the environmental movement. You call them the dark greens. They're obviously never going to be with us. But I have a lot of faith that conservationists will continue to see the wisdom of this approach of ecological modernization over this attempt to sort of starve the beast of its energy. All right. Well, we got to wrap up, but I want to bring one more point to the attention of readers, just to highlight in the essay, because this is this is the this is the point that I learned the most from uh, when I read it, which was just this this perspective of man becoming less dependent on ecosystems being a good thing, and and there's a certain metaphysics to the. Uh, what I would call anti-humanist view, which is that nature is our fragile mother and we're greedy and we're ruining her and we're going to destroy this delicate balance. And I just thought it was a really fascinating perspective that part of what we're doing through technology is we are able to use so many more different uh, parts of nature that we don't have to be dependent on usually these these large biological systems. We can do something like take a piece of metal out of the ground and generate all our energy with it instead of taking huge amounts of plants or huge amounts of land to harness the sun. I just thought that was exactly. a really fascinating point that was from a perspective, from an ecological perspective that I never uh, uh, thought of. And it really shows the lie that oh, we're in this fragile ecosystem and, and we're ruining it and we're going to suffer. I think a lot of the, the upset by the environmentalists is that we're not suffering. Yes. It's a very, I agree 100%. Um, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I think this point about material throughput is also very important. I mean, there's a way in which I think everybody can understand why if you care about the environment, what you want to do is you want to use it less um, you, you know, if you care about wildlife and forests and, and clean water, you want to use it less. So you want less material um, going into any process, whether it's making energy, making food, making products. You want more of your usable energy or usable products or food coming out, and you want less waste. Um, so when it comes to energy, it's just a clear hierarchy. You know, it goes from wood to coal to natural gas to nuclear. Um, you know, same thing with food and meat production. Um, uh, you know, same thing with industrial processes, but that means that you want more centralization, not less, of production. In fact, you know, it, it's the centralization of production that, that allows for the decentralization or the distribution of consumption. And, um, you know, I think that, uh, um, I think once ordinary folks understand that, we can have a more rational conversation about what's, what really matters for the natural environment. All right, great. Well, lots, lots more to be discussed in a future episode. Hopefully we'll get you back and we'll talk exactly about the moral standards by which we sort of judge the relationship between human beings and the rest of uh, nature. But I really wanted to highlight today just that, you know, that you guys exist, that you have these interesting views, that you're philosophical and, and that you're bringing uh, 
to the world, I think, a, a huge number of important facts that have been concealed and that are fundamentally disruptive uh, to the way we're taught to think about uh, human beings and industry and environment. So thank you for your work and thanks, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Alex. And uh, just one more thing, where can people learn uh, more about Breakthrough? I've, I've mentioned the ecomodernism.org slash manifesto, but where can they learn more about Breakthrough Institute? Um, our website is thebreakthrough.org, and the, and the manifesto can be read or downloaded from ecomodernism.org. All right. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks, Alex. Thanks again to Michael Schellenberger for coming. I thought he gave lots of fascinating answers. In terms of final thoughts, there's an issue that I have a lot to say about, uh, but I almost want to wait to do another episode uh, with Mike on it, if, if he'll do it, which is, it is about the issue of standard of value. And, and, and when we're talking about issues like decoupling or the environment, are we ultimately measuring them by human well-being? Or is there some sort of attempt to say, well, we're measuring it by human well-being, and that's the standard, but also leaving nature untouched is the standard, because things came up like, we'll be at peak impact on nature. Well, is that a good thing? And if so, would it have been a good thing if we hadn't increased population? Why is it a good thing now? Is that the right way to think about it? So what I found most fascinating about the Eco-Modernist Manifesto was just the identification of certain underlying dynamics of the relationship between man and nature that are unknown, including dynamics that are not this sort of fundamental antagonism of sort of we're just, quote, destroying the planet or we're inherently opposed to every other species, uh, but rather there are many harmonious relationships. But there are also many non-harmonious relationships and, and I think the way to think about all of them is, is to think about them by the metric, by the standard uh, of, of human well-being. So uh, we can only talk about so many things uh, at a time during the interview, and I wanted to get out a lot of that, that unique content. But if, if you listen to the show or you think about it, uh, think about sort of where the different camps are on this issue of standard of value, because I think that uh, Center for Industrial Progress is, you know, I'd say the, the pure humanist camp, which, again, does not mean any inherent antagonism toward anything else, but nor does it mean any inherent uh, uh, positive disposition to any given part of nature. Um, and then there's the environmentalist, and then the, the breakthrough institute of what's called eco-modernist, uh, is is a different uh, position, but as you might guess, I think ultimately the humanist position uh, is is the right position. So check out check out the Eco Modernist Manifesto. Uh, go you can go read the Industrial Manifesto if you want, or the last chapter of the Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which contains a lot of that content. But hopefully you found it interesting. I found it uh, interesting. Definitely one of the most fun uh, shows from my perspective. All right, so that'll be it for this power hour. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to check us out on Facebook, uh, on Twitter, and definitely subscribe to the newsletter at industrialprogress.com. Until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.